And a very happy weekend to you. Welcome to the Rick Edelman Show. We've got a lot to chat with you about today. Uh, we're going to talk about some important financial planning issues, including, as we approach year-end, some important news for you in the world of investing and your strategy, and lots of your phone calls today as well. So uh, buckle up your seatbelt and uh, let's get started. First, uh, I want to begin with a little bit of a celebration here at Edelman Financial Engines. Tech Staffer Magazine has just announced the top five retirement investment firms in the U.S., saying these firms specifically focus on retirement planning for employees of Fortune 500 companies, assisting employees when they're transitioning into retirement. The editors considered key services that these firms offer, the quality of their customer service, and the free educational materials that the firms provide to workers. They focused on firms working for major corporations who serve workers ages 50 to 70 who have half a million or more to invest. And with 7 out of 10 investors saying that they think inflation is going to negatively affect their pension plans and their 401ks and their health care costs, the tech staff are rankings more timely than ever. And I'm really excited to announce that Edelman Financial Engines was ranked number three in the ranking. Tech Staffer gave the highest weighting in determining the rankings to the extent that the firms specialize in corporate retirement plans, the amount of complimentary free services they provide, their cash flow analysis they do for each worker, and the number of years they've been in business. So we're very excited to be ranked in the top three by Tech Staffer magazine. Last week on the program, I mentioned the work that we're doing at the Stanford Center on Longevity in the development of the new map of life. You know, we all experience our travels through this map. Uh, we're born, we go to school, we go to work, we retire, we die. We do things pretty much in that order, and we've been doing it that way ever since the industrial age began more than 100 years ago. Well, that worked for the last 100 years because life expectancies were relatively stable. But now that we're all retiring at 65 and living to 85, and soon we'll be living to age 100, well, that map of life really doesn't make any sense anymore. I mean, does it really make any sense to put 40% of your life in the retirement category? I mean, where are you going to get the money to be retired for 40 years? And, and what are you going to do with all that time? So Stanford is working hard on developing a new map of life that reflects today's longevity and the increases that are widely expected over the next couple of decades. I've been serving on the advisory board at the Center on Longevity for quite some time, and we're really excited to announce that this week, the Stanford Center on Longevity has officially launched the new map of life. You can read all about it. You can look at the details. Go to longevity.stanford.edu or just Google search Stanford Center on Longevity, you'll get all the info there so you can see in detail the work that we're doing and how we think it's going to have a big impact on your life. Think about this. If you are in your 50s planning for retirement in the next decade, what are you going to do after that? Well, you need to start thinking about it because in the old days it was easy. Retire at 62, dead at 65. Well, if you're going to live to 85 or 95 or 105, we need to rethink this. Even more important for your kids and grandkids who are beginning their careers, if they're in their teens, 20s, 30s, well, how are they handling their lives and the map that they're laying out? It's time to rethink that map of life, and Stanford's leading the way. So I encourage you to go to longevity.stanford.edu. Another truism that has been applied in the financial planning profession for years, ever since, frankly, I've been in this business, and that's pushing four decades now, 
has been the notion of what we call the 4% rule. Here's the question. How much of your portfolio can you withdraw on an annual basis without running out of money? This is a pretty key question, isn't it? If you're facing retirement, you want to know how much you can withdraw and support yourself from your portfolio. So let's say that you've got a million dollars saved up through hard work, delayed gratification, self-sacrifice. You've done a really good job and the financial markets have helped you along and you've amassed a huge amount of money, a million dollars. How much of that can you withdraw on an annual basis so that you don't run out of money before you die? Traditionally, the financial planning community has used what we call the 4% rule. You can withdraw 4% per year and be reasonably confident that you won't run out of money. Of course, there is no guarantee to any of this, and we certainly know past performance doesn't guarantee future results, but this has been the basic premise on which financial planners often work. In other words, if you've got a million dollars in your account, you can withdraw 40000 a year. And then you can increase that based on inflation on an annual basis. This assumes that you have an equal mix of stocks and bonds in your portfolio and also assumes that you need the money to last for 30 years. But is that 4% rule still valid? Well, Morningstar has just issued a new report saying no, because Morningstar says returns are not going to be as high over the next 30 years as they have been for the past 30 years. And therefore, if you want to make sure you don't run out of money before you die, especially taking into consideration we're likely to live longer, which means the money has to last longer, instead of withdrawing 4% per year, Morningstar says to withdraw 3.3% per year. In other words, instead of getting 40 grand out of that million dollar portfolio annually, you're only going to get $33,000. Now, a couple of things you need to identify about this. This withdrawal rate assumes that you want your principal to remain intact. In other words, if you've got a million dollars today at 65, you withdraw 4% a year, or according to Morningstar, 3.3% a year, and in 30 years, the million dollars is still there. Well, do you really need that to be the case? A lot of folks want it to be that way so you can leave that million dollars as an inheritance to your children. But if you don't have children or they're already doing very well, thank you very much, or you're done supporting those spoiled little rotten brats, you don't need to have a million dollars in your account when you die. You need the account to be simply above zero. You don't want to run out of money, but it doesn't matter how much money is actually left. On that basis, you could actually withdraw more than 4% a year. You could withdraw 5 or 6 or 7 or 8% a year, depending on your life expectancy, your projected longevity, and your attitude about leaving a balance for heirs definitely adjusts how much you need to withdraw on an annual basis. Also, keep in mind, these numbers aren't set in stone. Morningstar, you know, is not Moses, and there's nothing here in stone tablets. In other words, on an annual basis, you can make changes. You can change the composition of the portfolio. It doesn't have to stay 50-50 stocks and bonds. It could change. You could increase the amount of stocks or decrease the amount. You can also increase the amount you withdraw in a given year because of higher expenses in one year compared to others. And it also doesn't take into consideration the need for an occasional lump sum withdrawal. It also doesn't take into consideration 
income you'll get from other sources, such as Social Security, a pension, or part-time gig, where you might work on a part-time basis, earning 10 or 15 grand a year to supplement your retirement. In other words, the situation is rather complex. There are a lot of levers you have to consider pulling to determine exactly how much money can you withdraw from your retirement accounts, where, in fact, should you withdraw the money from first, that's a biggie because you probably have money in more than one account. You probably have money in a taxable account. You probably have money in retirement accounts at work, as well as IRA accounts. You might also have money in annuities. So different buckets of money have different tax treatment. They also have different implications for estate planning purposes. So not only do you have to figure out how much money to withdraw, you also have to figure out which account to withdraw the money from. And this is why... You shouldn't try this at home. You should enlist the services of a financial advisor who is skilled in all three of these issues. Asset allocation, how much of your money should be in stocks versus bonds as you enter retirement and throughout your retirement. Second, how much money should you withdraw on an annual basis to reduce the risk you'll run out of money before you die. And third, which of your accounts should you withdraw the money from and in what order? Let's make sure we get it right because... You only get one shot at this. And if that sounds daunting, well, yeah, it is. And that's why the financial advisors at Edelman Financial Engines are here to help. Just call 888-PLAN-RICK or visit us online at ricestellman.com. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Money. Stay with us for more here on the program. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Rick Edelman Show. Last week, I told you that General Electric is splitting itself into three separate companies. Well, guess who's on the bandwagon now? Toshiba. They're going to split themselves into three separate companies too. An infrastructure company, an electronic devices company, and the third will keep the Toshiba name, and that'll be a flash memory company, tech for sure. And that's not all. Johnson & Johnson announced they're going to split itself up. 135 years old. The company was founded in 1886. They're going to split themselves into two companies consumer products, and a medical company. Clearly, the trend for international corporate conglomerates is gone, and people want specificity. They want a one-trick pony. They want a company that does one thing really well, as opposed to an amalgam of a whole lot of things, maybe none of them all that great. Also last week, I told you that Bitcoin was going mainstream. Digital assets, cryptocurrency is becoming a common nomenclature in society. And I gave you a lot of examples of that last week. Well, here are some more this week. The Staples Center in Los Angeles, home of NBA's Lakers and Clippers and the NHL's Kings and the WNBA's Sparks. Well, the Staples Center is no longer going to be the Staples Center. Crypto.com is paying $700 million dollars to secure the naming rights for the next 20 years. And NYDIG, the New York Digital Investment Group, is now sponsoring the Houston Rockets, and they're going to pay the team in Bitcoin. So you're going to be seeing crypto companies and digital assets providers more and more frequently at every sporting event you can think of. Oh, and it's also getting increasingly common for people to donate in Bitcoin. The Sun Valley Community Church, with 10,000 members, now accepts online donations in Bitcoin. They said, quote, we're just trying to keep up with the way people prefer to give, and younger people don't carry cash. We want to be accommodating to ways that people are transacting. 
Sun Valley Church even has a lead director of digital strategies. And OnlineGiving.org says they know of 40 churches around the country that take Bitcoin, Litecoin, Dash, and Doggycoin. Churches from California to South Carolina. So clearly, Bitcoin and digital assets are going mainstream. But when you see that happening, it also creates the opportunity for silliness and, frankly, outright fraud. Silliness? Yeah, I'll give you one clear example of this. Your house rose in value since 2019, pretty dramatically. But LendingTree now says that instead of keeping your home, if you had sold it in 2019 and used the money to buy Bitcoin, today you'd have a million dollars more than you actually have. Well, that's great. That's just great. I thought all the nuts went home after Labor Day. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. LendingTree, a company known for engagement in the real estate and mortgage industry, is trying to tell us that we should have bought Bitcoin in 2019. And if we had, if we had sold our house to buy Bitcoin, we'd have more money today. That is classic hindsight. What on earth does owning a home have to do with buying Bitcoin? Look, you know I'm a big fan of Bitcoin, but this is downright silly, and it could cause people to reach the wrong conclusion. Anybody who would ever contemplate selling their home in order to buy Bitcoin, well, that's just downright silly. This demonstrates the dangers of digital assets. There's a lot of legitimacy to this marketplace, a lot of very serious-minded people building responsible companies that have tremendous benefit for global commerce that will revolutionize the way that we transact money with individuals between each other when we're buying goods and services and moving money around the world. A lot of it is quite legitimate and very exciting, hence my enthusiasm for the digital asset and blockchain space. But at the same time, there are some players out there that are exploiting all of this for their own personal gain. Please, keep your head about yourself. And oh, by the way, you need to make sure you're getting good financial advice about all of this. One way you can protect yourself against the frauds and the scams that permeate every financial market. I mean, you don't find con artists only in the world of Bitcoin. They're equally out there in the world of bonds and stocks and real estate and gold. They're, you know, crooks are found pretty much everywhere. We know that. It helps to be working with a skilled financial advisor. Think Advisor magazine asked eight financial advisors how they view Bitcoin. And I'm going to cite the quotes of three of these eight advisors because they serve a very good message for the rest of us. When you go get advice from a financial advisor, it's important to make sure that the advisor knows what they're talking about. We want to avoid bias, prejudice, misconceived notions, and outright myths so that the advice we're getting is legitimate. Monica Dwyer of Harvest Financial Advisors in Westchester, Ohio, was quoted by Think Advisor magazine as saying, quote, there are viruses that can wipe out your wallet. That's not true. There are no viruses. There are hackers. There are ways that you can lose your digital assets or the wallet that holds them. 
but there aren't viruses that can wipe out your wallet, at least none that I have ever heard of or come across. Michael Palazzo of Fintentional in Birmingham, Michigan, says, quote, My advice hasn't changed about digital assets. I have not started any due diligence research. Let me get this straight. You're giving advice. Your advice hasn't changed, but you admit that you haven't done any research? Why would you hire a financial advisor who admits that they have never done research, they don't know anything about the subject, but yet they have advice and their advice hasn't changed? As you're hiring advisors, make sure you're hiring advisors who know what they're talking about. And Chris Chen of Insight Financial Strategists in Newton, Massachusetts says, quote, Bitcoin is worse than gold because it has no industrial applications. That statement is flat out false. Bitcoin and digital assets have thousands of commercial use cases. This is why the asset class is so exciting to so many. For someone to offer a statement that is flat incorrect demonstrates they don't know what they're talking about and calls into question the reliability of their advice, not only in this area, but in every area of personal finance. You need to make sure you're working with a financial advisor who knows what they're talking about. And if you don't have one, you're invited to turn to the advisors at Edelman Financial Engines. Call us at 888-PLAN-RICK or visit us online at rickedelman.com. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show. I enjoy bringing you the latest in exponential technologies, subjects involving artificial intelligence, robotics, 3D printing, nanotech, biotech, big data, you name it. There's so many innovations coming, affecting virtually every aspect of life on the planet. We've got big problems in our world, as we know, and technology is going to deliver the answers for us. Here's a couple of illustrations. Electric vehicles, we know that that's a hot topic. Get rid of those combustion engines, which are spewing poisonous gas into our atmosphere. The problem with electric vehicles is that they run on batteries. The problem there, car companies are running out of the raw materials that are needed to make those batteries. But scientists have recently discovered four new materials that might help. But these discoveries weren't made by humans. They were discovered by software, artificial intelligence. Yeah, researchers used AI to pick out useful chemicals from a list of more than 300 options. The AI was able to sift through the list, figure out combinations that might prove of value in the effort to create materials that could lead to battery technology, and saved researchers huge amounts of time and massive amounts of money. AI making discoveries humans can't do themselves. Well, there's now research that has really benefited one woman who is blind. She can now see shapes and letters for the first time in 16 years. This is thanks to a visual prosthesis that was implanted into her brain. The patient volunteered to be the first person to have a tiny electrode with 100 microneedles implanted into the visual region of her brain. She then spent six months going to the lab every day for four hours a day for tests and training. And she can now see horizontal and vertical patterns, including letters of the alphabet. This isn't the ideal, but it's one heck of a tremendous step. And we're seeing greater future potential as we develop technologies that will allow people with visual impairments to be able to see once again sometimes for the very first time. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Money. 888-PLAN-RICK. 
That's 888-752-6742. Or if you prefer, just record your question on your smartphone and then send me your recording to askrick at rickedelman.com. Whatever way is easy for you, we're happy to help. Welcome back to the Rick Edelman Show. We're uh, talking about crazy advice from people who purport to know what they're talking about when, in fact, they haven't really admitted to you, and perhaps even to themselves, that they aren't as knowledgeable in a given area as they may think they are, hope they are, or which you might expect that they are. And this raises the issue of, are you paying for advice like that? And are you getting the value for the advice that you're paying? You know, these days, financial advisors uh, increasingly charge an annual fee, not commissions. Uh, Investors have made their preferences known over the past couple of decades. You don't like to pay commissions. And that's understandable. Why not? Because when you pay commissions, the advisor, the broker makes money, whether you make money or not. And you always have to wonder about the nature of their advice. Are they telling you to buy and sell because you should or simply because they're trying to earn a commission? When you're dealing with a fee-based advisor where the compensation isn't tied to trading activity, it mitigates that particular conflict of interest. And many advisors have a fee that is based on the value of the account. So as the account goes up, the fee goes up, the compensation goes up. As the account goes down, the fee goes down, the compensation goes down. In other words, that puts the advisor on the same side of the table as you. You want your account value to go up, and so does your advisor. So everybody's equally motivated to have your account do well. So it's increasingly common that you encounter advisors who charge an annual fee. That's how Edelman Financial Engines does it, and it's very, very common. But according to the SEC, advisors who charge you an annual fee are supposed to be providing you with ongoing advice. And that's a question you need to ask. Do you have an account with a fee-based advisor who you no longer talk to? This is what's called an orphan account. Many advisors have orphan accounts. You know, it could be because your advisor left the firm and your account is still with the firm, but your advisor's not there and there's nobody really that you're working with, or you don't really need the services of the advisor. You're happy to leave the account there, but you don't really need any particular help or there's nothing really going on. Orphan accounts by the, in and of itself, it's not a problem. They're very, very common. But when an advisor has an orphan account on their books, they're not supposed to be billing their annual fee because the annual fee is for ongoing advice and service. And if they're not providing you ongoing advice, they shouldn't be charging you their ongoing fee. The SEC this week just fined Regal Investment Advisors in Michigan nearly $1 million. They discovered that the firm had 81 orphaned clients, but was still charging their annual fee. And this is a significant concern. So firms are supposed to be on top of this, identifying if an account is orphan, stopping their annual fee, and clients should be aware that you should be paying only literally for what you're getting. So it raises the question for some clients, well, gee, if there's a risk that my advisor might be charging me a fee, even though I'm not getting much in service, maybe I should just fire the advisor. Maybe I should just go to, oh, I don't know, um, directly to mutual funds on my own. Well, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the right answer. In fact, there's a lawsuit now against the American Century Value Fund. This is a mutual fund with $2.5 billion in assets. The lawsuit's charging that the fund 
was assessing excessive fees for active management, buying and selling stocks to produce higher than average returns. But the lawsuit contends that the mutual fund is really just an index fund, that its portfolio pretty much tracks a market index and therefore shouldn't be charging the fees that it's charging. You know, I first talked about this in my book, The Lies About Money, back in 2007. This closet indexing, where an actively managed fund is really, in fact, acting like an index. There's nothing new here, but this is the first lawsuit of its kind in the U.S. The lawsuit says 90% of the fund's return can be explained by its benchmark, not the manager's decisions. And the fund is charging 1% a year. And guess what? It has trailed the benchmark by... You guessed it, nearly 1% a year. So the fee doesn't seem to be worth the money, according to this lawsuit. So that might say, well, gee, I'm not sure if I should have my money with an individual mutual fund. Maybe I should just go online to a robo-advisor. You know, this way, you know, robo-advisors are a lot less expensive than traditional financial advisors where they have brick-and-mortar offices and people and staff to assist. Maybe I should just open an online brokerage account with a robo-advisor. Well, the SEC just announced the completion of exams of virtually every robo-advisor in the country and found deficiencies at almost every firm. They found problems with their compliance programs, portfolio programs, their marketing, performance advertising, lack of written procedures, and questioned their ability to provide their fiduciary duty to give advice in every client's best interests. The SEC's report said, quote, when robo-advisors fail to comply with their regulatory obligations, investors may experience poor outcomes. The SEC criticized them for failing to consider each client's risk tolerance, for having conflicts of interest. They said some firms rely on just a few data points before offering financial advice. For example, they may say, what's your date of birth and how much money do you have? And then saying, here's the investment strategy for you. Too little information to be able to give you effective advice. Many failed to periodically update client accounts. They failed to ask if client situations or their investment objectives have changed. More than half of robo-advisors, the SEC said, have been running advertising, featuring misleading statements and, quote-unquote, vague and unsubstantiated claims about their services, investment options, performance expectations, and their fees. And in particular, the SEC says that a lot of these firms misrepresented SIPC protection. That's the Securities Investors Protection Corp. That's like to Wall Street what FDIC is to banks. They were implying that they have SIPC protection, meaning that your account would be protected if the market crashed. That's not true. That's not what SIPC does at all. It doesn't protect you against market losses. They also say some firms used the logos of ABC, CNN, and Forbes without explaining the reference. And finally, they said that some of these referred to positive commentaries by third parties without disclosing the fact that those third parties were often compensated to say what they were saying. So is robo the answer? Is that the direction you should go into? I'm not so sure. I think instead, all you need to do is your reasonable due diligence. Shop for a financial advisor the way you would for any product you're familiar with, washing machines or automobiles. You know how the game works. You know what it is you want, and you know what it is you need. You simply ask the advisor if they provide those services, ask them how much their fees are, have them share with you their ADV. This is the federal disclosure document that shows their fees, their experience, the services they provide, and then evaluate 
annually with your advisor, are you satisfied with the service? Have you been in contact with the advisor in a sufficient number of times throughout the year to your satisfaction? If your life is stable and there's nothing unusual going on, no developments of any kind, you haven't gotten a new job, there hasn't been any marital status change, nobody born or died during the year, you haven't moved, you haven't bought or sold property, you know, nothing is different, well, you might talk to the advisor once or twice a year. That's plenty. On the other hand, if something dynamic is happening, you're changing jobs, you're getting married, your daughter had a baby, you've looked for a new job, you've got a windfall from an inheritance and you need to figure out how to invest it. Well, you might talk to your advisor a couple of times a week. Financial advice is kind of like going to the doctor. If you're healthy, an annual checkup's probably just fine. If you're really sick, you're probably talking or even seeing your doctor on a daily basis. And so the extent that you're in contact should be reflective of your circumstances. And as your circumstances change, the level of contact should change as well. Don't be an orphan. Don't let yourself be treated as an orphan, but don't assume that the alternatives of doing it on your own by going to mutual funds directly by yourself or going online where you're not getting any human interaction, where you can't ask any questions, where there's nobody to act as a sounding board to evaluate the thought process you have, don't assume that that's the answer either. If you're trying to figure it out, the best thing you can do, just like when buying that washing machine, is to do comparison shopping. You'll never know if that advisor's any good until you compare them to another advisor. And so that's why if you're shopping, talk to two or three. And even if you have an advisor, it might make sense to get a second opinion when you're getting new and different levels of advice. At Edelman Financial Engines, we have a checklist for you on the key questions you should ask when interviewing a financial advisor. It's on our website at rickedelman.com, free, available for you anytime you want. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Money. Triple eight, plan Rick, rickedelman.com. Let's take a phone call here on The Rick Edelman Show. Off to Danville, California to say hi to Eric. And how can I help you, sir? Well, I was listening to the show last week from the lady uh, in La Jolla, California, and I just wanted to ask you why you didn't suggest that she... Uh, invest in some real estate possibly for this uh, person to occupy. So to help people recall this, uh, a woman called and, and wanted to know how she could help a friend of hers who didn't have a lot of money, needed a place to live, and she wanted to support her friend by giving her $1,000 a month toward her housing. Uh, and so, Eric, you want to know why I didn't recommend that she buy a property for her? Yes. Well, that wasn't really the conversation. First of all, giving her $1,000 a month is a whole lot different than spending a half a million dollars to buy a piece of real estate. Second, does she want to become a landlord? And what is she going to do if her friend uh, doesn't make the payments? And is her friend going to be any more able to make the payments on the property that she then buys as opposed to the property that the friend is now in? Uh, and I'm not even sure if she could afford the half a million dollars. We didn't get into that kind of a conversation. From the nature of her question, it never occurred to me that she might be able to afford that, would even contemplate buying a piece of real estate. But you're right, it is certainly something that could be contemplated, I would imagine. Um, but I would be pretty hesitant uh, to doing that unless it was an, a, an extremely close relationship with a very high degree of confidence in all parties being able to undertake the effort and sustain the commitment associated with it. But I suppose if there was plenty of money available, sure, why not? Buy our house and live happily ever after. Uh, I'm not sure it's terribly realistic, but sure, if it works, it works. 
my goal was trying to remove the monthly exchange of money or interaction of that money between uh, the giver and the, and the recipient. Yeah, I can appreciate that instead of her having to come up with a thousand bucks a month, but you're demanding that she comes up with 500 grand right now. I think I'd rather go with a thousand a month. Well, for a thousand a month, that's, that's a pretty expensive way to uh, unload a friend too. Uh, well, that's something that has to be taken into consideration, doesn't it, is the nature of the relationship. You know what they say when you lend money to a friend, be prepared to lose the money or the friend. <laughs> Eric, thank you so much for calling. That was Eric in Danville, California, here on The Rick Edelman Show. Time now for everybody's favorite segment of the program, a visit by my wife, Jean Edelman, founder here at Edelman Financial Engines and a degree in consumer economics and nutrition, expert in macrobiotic cooking. Here's Jean. Hello, everyone. Great to be here always fun to share. So this week, I want to talk about plants in our diet. We are entering the time of year where we focus on food. We're planning meals for our family gatherings, time with friends. And if your family's like mine, it's all about the tradition and the foods we grew up with. As I've shared before, I don't wish to go down the health path of my elders. I want a different health path. And so I've challenged myself and I want to challenge all of us to find new ways to prepare some of our favorite dishes. You know the ones, the ones that are loaded with the butter and the sugar, the ones that we really love. <laughs> There's a great website and magazine called Forks Over Knives. This month, the article that got my attention was how putting more plant-based meals in our diet can help reduce inflammation, can help us feel more energetic, can possibly help us lose a few pounds, reduce our cholesterol, and improve our gut health. Well, that got my attention. Also, there's research that's showing that lifestyle changes, including a plant-based diet, along with managing our stress, can lengthen our telomeres. What are our telomeres? They are the caps at the end of our chromosomes that help keep our DNA stable. And this means that if we can change our telomeres, if we can change our lifestyle and include more plant-based foods, it means that our cells and tissues will age more slowly. And since shortened telomeres are associated with aging and early death, well, I think if we put it all together, it means that we can have a healthier life. So I wish to get into the nitty gritty and share some alternatives for the butter and the sugar and the thickeners. For a butter alternative, we can use applesauce, we can use avocados, we can use pumpkin, and we can use mashed bananas. For sugar alternatives, we can again use applesauce, we can use dates, we can use maple syrup, we can use mashed bananas. And here's a new one for you, monk fruit. Monk fruit is actually a fruit that they have made a very healthy sugar out of. It is good for our glycemic value. So something new. How do we think in things? If you're a cook and you make your roux for your creamed spinach and your creamed cauliflower, well, you know, my dad, we always used butter and white flour. But thickener alternatives are pureed white beans. We can also use olive oil and some brown rice flour to make that roux. What about trying some plant-based butters? 
What about there are so many amazing plant-based cheeses and plant-based milks to use as alternatives in our thickening agents? And how about our flours? There are so many alternatives to the traditional white baking flour. There's brown rice flour, chickpea flour, buckwheat flour, teff flour. And all these flour alternatives have actually more protein, and so they're better for us. Look up Bob's Red Mill. They have wonderful variety of flours, and you may find some that you really like. Cooking alternatives. So instead of the heavy cooking, try some steaming, try some blanching, try some water saute. And when we roast, maybe just roast with a little bit of light olive oil and a pinch of salt. I know this is a nitty gritty cooking class and it's kind of fun, but I just want to challenge you to engage and find these new ways to improve our health. We control what we eat. We change our health path. And if you're going to bring a dish to someone's home for Thanksgiving or an event, try preparing it in your alternative way with these alternatives and see, you know what? I bet nobody will notice and they're going to say how wonderful it is. So can you guess what my word of the week is? It's plant. The P is for plenty. There are plenty of alternatives now. Have fun walking the aisles in our food stores, reading labels, and getting to know what these new alternatives are. And you know what? They're not always going to be a home run. I can't tell you how many dishes I've made and I've ended up putting them in the compost pile. But, you know, it's learning. It's fun. It's challenging ourselves. So plenty, plenty of alternatives. The L is for life. Life is about learning and finding something new and challenging our health. And I'm telling you what, if we can change our telomeres, changing our food, we can change our health. A is for abundant. We are so blessed with these supermarkets and they are filled to the brim with fruits and vegetables and variety is the key. Just go try a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and it's going to make our dinner so much more fun. The N is for nourish. Think about taking in the life and the energy of these vegetables and eating all the colors, the colors of the carrots and squashes and all of our greens. They fuel our cells with the vitamins and minerals. So nourish. And the tea is for taste. When we allow these fresh foods to just be what they are, instead of covering them in heavy salt and butter and cream sauces, we can truly taste the food we are eating. So if you're looking to make a health change, I encourage you to check out ForksOverKnives.com. They have a website. You can put the app on your phone. They have magazines. It's just a nice way to have a nice alternative in front of you so you can make a new recipe. We can take our health into our own hands and we can change our health path. Take it one day at a time. Take it one meal at a time. Take it one bite at a time. And before you know it, you will see changes and see that these changes are easy. You will feel better and you will have more energy. And you will be amazed at how these small changes go a long way for a happy and healthy life. Thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful week. Have fun preparing these dishes. And think about the nourishment and nutrition that you're bringing to your family and friends. Take care. Gene's passion really comes through, and I have a feeling, based on this week's segment, 
Gene, you're likely to be getting a bunch of emails from folks wanting to get some of your recipes. Happy Thanksgiving for everyone. Stay with us here on The Rick Edelman Show. Triple H, Plan Rick, online at ricedelman.com. Welcome back to The Rick Edelman Show. Thanks for hanging around this half hour. Do you have a financial advisor? And has your financial advisor talked with you about the impact of the pandemic on your personal financial planning objectives? Now, to me, it would seem kind of obvious that you've been in conversation with your financial advisor over the past year and a half that COVID uh, emerged, uh, pushing two years now, and that the pandemic has very likely had an impact on your life and that it may have even altered your outlook, your views. It might have caused you to say, you know what, I think I'm going to retire sooner than I otherwise had planned to do or I'm thinking of changing jobs, or I'm thinking of moving to a different part of the country, uh, or any number of alterations in your thought process. Here's what is astonishing to me. A new survey just came out this week of high net worth investors. These are people with a million dollars or more in investments. Only one third of them say that their advisors have asked if their views or plans have changed due to the pandemic. I find it unconscionable that two-thirds of these clients are dealing with advisors who've never stopped to talk with them about the pandemic and how it might have altered their attitudes or their views regarding important aspects of their personal finances. This is illustrative of the fact that you need to make sure you're getting an ongoing level of advice and service from your financial advisor. That even though you may have been working with your advisor for many, many years and you've got a good relationship, you know each other well, everything is going just fine, thank you very much. I mean, the investment portfolio is probably doing very well this year. We need to make sure that the advice we're giving you is the advice you need today, not based on your attitude or circumstances of the past, but your current attitude and circumstances, as well as your projected circumstances. If you're not getting that level of advice and support and help from your financial advisor, you might want to rethink who your financial advisor is. And if you don't even have a financial advisor, if you're saying to yourself, gee, it would be nice to have somebody talk to me about what I'm doing and where I'm headed uh, and help me take all of this into proper consideration regarding investments and taxes and insurance and my career and projected retirement activities and so on. Give us a call here at Edelman Financial Engines at Triple Eight Plan Rick. You know, one of the things that certainly impacted an awful lot of folks in the pandemic was the aspect of education. Uh, we know how horrible the experience was for parents and their school children being locked down or having to uh, not get an education or, or get a virtual education with so many children unable to thrive in that kind of an environment. The challenge of working parents struggling with children at home full time, trying to get them the education that they need. And school teachers either being unavailable or struggling themselves with their own circumstances or their inability, their inexperience in teaching a classroom full of kids virtually. It was just extraordinarily difficult. And it's not over yet, as we know, with the challenges that are going on with school teachers dealing with the whole mask issue and vaccine issue and not enough school teachers. So many have retired in the pandemic and a dearth of substitute teachers and, and qualified teachers across the country. It's a real challenge. And how are many parents responding to this? Well, those who are affluent enough are hiring private tutors. 
And this is a trend that's growing worldwide. This isn't something happening in the United States. In South Korea, 80% of the children are receiving private tutors. 90% of Japanese children. A majority of those in Greece, 80% of the children in Egypt. In Germany, it's 40% of the kids, 29% in South Africa, 27% in England and Wales. And so if you think that sending your kid to school is enough for them to get the education they need, to be able to get into the college of their choice, to get the career that they want, well, I'm afraid increasingly that really is unlikely because other students are getting private tutoring, which is giving them an edge. They're more likely to do well on the SAT, which will give them an opportunity to get into a better college, which could set the pace for them getting the jobs that they're looking for. So increasingly, we are becoming a country of the haves and the have-nots in the field of education. It's not merely public school versus private school. It's also tutor or not. And at the same time, we have a challenge in U.S. colleges, some of the wealthiest U.S. colleges, those with the biggest endowments, are steering parents into college loans that they can't repay. This, according to the Wall Street Journal, you know, the Parent Plus program has no cap on the amount you're allowed to borrow. Regardless of your income, no matter how low your income is, you can borrow a maximum amount to get the kid into college to pay the tuition fees, room and board, even if the parent doesn't earn enough money to ever repay that loan, even if the student, of course, doesn't have any money either. Parents owe collectively $104 billion to the Student Plus program, and the criticism that the journal has highlighted is the fact that there isn't a correlation between affordability and qualification. You know, this doesn't apply anywhere else. Think about when you try to buy a house and obtain a mortgage to do it. You had to go through incredible amounts of paperwork, didn't you? The bank wanted to know how much is your income? How much money do you have? How much do you have in debts? What are your monthly expenses? Your income? What has your income been for the past three years? We want to know how stable your income is. We want to know if it's likely your income is going to continue because the bank is trying to figure out, do you have the ability to repay this loan? And then, even after the bank said, okay, we'll give you the loan, they set an interest rate that was based on the likelihood you'll default. You know, the more likely you'll default, the higher they're going to charge you. And then they said, we're not going to give you the money. We're going to send the money directly to the seller of the house because we're not going to give it to you because we can't trust what you might do with it. We're going to just send the money to the seller of the house or the builder of the house. And we're going to use the house as collateral. So if you don't repay us, we can legally seize the house which we can then sell to get the money back that we've lent you. That's not how it works in college loans. In college loans, they simply say, how much do you want to borrow? Here's the money. No collateral. And in some loan programs, they give the money directly to the borrower, directly to the parent or to the student. And this is why so many students use the money to buy a car, to buy alcohol or drugs, to take a spring break. They don't use the money for tuition, room, or board because you're handing tens of thousands of dollars to an 18-year-old who has, you tell me, how much financial knowledge, experience, education, and the maturity to go with managing that incredible asset. 
the college education system is kind of broken from all respects. We've got a huge challenge in K through 12 because of the pandemic. We have a dynamic environment in higher education because of the cost of that education and the ready availability of loans, even provided to families who have little to no hope of ever being able to repay it. And this is why you need to make sure you don't fall into this trap. Work with a professional financial advisor who can help you engage effectively in college planning for yourself as well as your students so that you don't end up with a scenario of graduating tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt after six years or more of effort where you say to yourself, college has ruined my life rather than improved it. And oh, by the way, that statement, college has ruined my life, was the cover story on Monday Magazine a few years ago when they interviewed a college grad acknowledging that the money they spent for the degree they got wasn't what they had hoped. I'm not suggesting by any means college is a bad deal. I'm suggesting that paying too much for college, going to the wrong school, going into the wrong major, that's the bad deal. And that is something we need to protect you against. And we also have to evaluate how are we going to pay for that. Many parents still today are unaware of college 529 savings plans, the most effective way to save for college because the money grows tax-free if used for qualifying college expenses. It's a heck of a deal. And yet millions of American parents who have college-bound children who are saving for college don't even know, let alone invest in a 529 plan. If you've got college on your mind or on your teenager's minds, make sure you don't go this alone. Call us at 888-PLAN-RICK or visit us at rickedelman.com. Let's go to the phones here on the Rick Edelman Show. Off to McLean, Virginia. John's with us on the air. How you doing, John? Good, Rick. How are you? I'm doing great, thank you. How can I help you? I'd like to thank you so much for all you've done over the years, 30-plus years. Well, you're very welcome. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, I'm a long-time listener. I think I used to recall you advising carrying a, an umbrella personal liability insurance policy to provide additional coverage beyond the limits of uh, auto or homeowners policies in case of a drastic accident mm-hmm. in a lawsuit. Um, I don't see this among your recommendation of your current 29 tips. Um do you still advise carrying this insurance? I'm wondering, can they take uh, things like, uh, say, you have a condo at the beach you go to on the weekends, can they take that? and Or could they attach IRA accounts or 401Ks or TSP savings? Let's talk about liability. Yeah, Yes, we still do recommend it. The fact that it wasn't on my list of 29 is that we were being very cute for our 29th anniversary of the radio show by having 29 tips. And so I ran out of room and something had to give, and that was one of them. So we have a lot more advice than just 29, and the umbrella liability insurance didn't make the cut. But yes, we do recommend umbrella liability insurance for our clients, uh, generally speaking, and the reason is this. You have homeowner's insurance, you have automobile insurance, and those are perfectly fine to the degree that they provide you the coverage that they provide. The problem is you may get sued for something unrelated to your home or car. You may get sued for a dollar amount that is in excess of the coverage you have on your home or car. And therefore, we recommend additional supplemental coverage. It's called an umbrella policy because it covers everything. Don't you love the metaphor? 
and it's called umbrella liability coverage because it protects you against legal claims, against legal liability for losses that you were being blamed for. It could be ranging from anything from somebody um, falling down the stairs in your house to the dog biting somebody. Uh, by the way, the average lawsuit there is $30,000 in settlement fees um, for dog bites. So who knows what it might be. People generally sue up to the amount that they can collect. And if your insurance doesn't cover the full loss of the judgment or legal settlement, uh, they can go after all of your assets. They can go after, uh, in most states, your house. They can go after your IRA accounts uh, everywhere in the country. They can't go after your 401k. That's a protected asset. So money in a 401k is shielded while the money is in the 401k from creditors. But money you've moved from a 401k to an IRA becomes available in a court judgment. So this is why we recommend that you get umbrella liability insurance. It's generally available only from the insurance company that gave you your homeowner's policy. And the reason is that the policy is really cheap. You can buy a million dollars worth of coverage for a hundred bucks or so. It's really inexpensive, which is one of the reasons we tell clients to get it. It's so cheap. There's no reason not to buy it. And we would uh, routinely tell people, depending on your net worth, depending on the total of your value of your assets and your properties and so on, we might tell you to buy $3 million, $5 million worth of liability coverage, uh, maybe more, maybe less, depending on your circumstances. But it's very inexpensive, and it's good peace of mind. So, yes, we do recommend it. Okay. Very good. Someone once told me he thought it was a waste of money to buy the premiums with the heck. Well, it's always a waste of money until you file a claim. I mean, think about your auto insurance. You know, you pay a lot of money every year for auto insurance. And this is why the insurance company is such a fascinating business. You write a check every year to them, and they do absolutely nothing for it except cash the check. Unless you're ever in an auto accident. Right. So if you're really annoyed at all the money that you're spending on auto insurance on an annual basis, the answer isn't cancel your insurance. The answer is drive your car into a tree. Well, I'm kidding, of course, but you get my point. You know, nobody likes insurance until they need it. So get the coverage. You'll be glad you did. And if you didn't ever need it, the peace of mind is worth something. Exactly. Okay. John, I appreciate your phone call. Thanks so much. That was John in McLean, Virginia, here on The Rick Edelman Show. Triple Eight Plan Rick. We've got a question from Ron. He sent his question via an audio file to askrick at rickedelman.com. Hey, Rick. This is Ron from Manassas. I want to start by thanking you and Gene for all you've done for people over the last 35 years or so and wish you both the best in your future endeavors. I've heard you covering what to do with overfunded 529s often. I usually hear you mention using it for other children, grandchildren, yourself, taking archaeological trips to travel, etc., or withdraw the money and pay the taxes. Also around this time of year, I've often heard you talking about donating and how to use appreciated investments to donate instead of cash and the advantages of that. However, I've never heard you combine the two. Is this something that can be done? Could you donate investments from overfunded 529 accounts and still get the same tax benefits? If so, would you have to transfer the entire account into the name of the charity, or could you only do some of the investments from it? Would the charity have to use it for educational purposes? 
Would love to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks. Ron, thank you for your kind comments, and uh, it's a very intriguing question that you're asking. It is increasingly common for people to be faced with the dilemma that they have overfunded their 529 accounts. How does that happen? Well, on the one hand, you've put too much money in it. Uh, simultaneously, the investments may have performed better than you expected them to perform. Just look how the stock market has been doing this year, for example. And third, your child may end up getting scholarships or grants and not needing the money, or the child may have to end up deciding to go to a less expensive school or not going to college at all. For all kinds of reasons, parents are increasingly finding themselves with a lot of money in a 529 account that they really don't need. And what do you do about that? Well, if you don't use the money for qualified education purposes, the withdrawals will be subject to taxes plus a 10% penalty. So Ron's asking a pretty interesting idea. Can I donate that money since I don't need it? I was planning to spend it anyway, and since I'm not going to spend it on college, can I spend it, quote unquote, via a charitable donation to a worthy cause? That's a wonderful idea, Ron. Unfortunately, the answer's kind of no. Here's the deal. Uh, you can't reassign a 529 account to a charity. The only way you can reassign an account is to change the beneficiary. When you establish a 529, you name the beneficiary, typically your son or daughter, or perhaps a grandchild. If you want, you can reassign the account. You can change the beneficiary, but the new beneficiary has to be a family member. It has to be a sibling of the beneficiary, or it has to be their parent, or it has to be one of their own children, or it has to be a cousin. That's it. You can't name a stranger, someone unrelated, and you can't name a business or a company or a charity as the beneficiary. So that doesn't work. What you could do is withdraw the money and then donate the proceeds to a charity. You'll get a tax deduction for the donation, subject to the tax deduction limits on charitable gifts, and that will negate the income that you are declaring on the receipt of the money from the account. So it sounds like a wash, doesn't it? If you withdraw $100 from the 529, that's $100 in income. But if you then donate it, that's a $100 deduction. They zero each other out. All good, except for one problem, the 10% penalty. You're still going to owe the 10% penalty. No way to avoid that. So I love the idea of your charitable thinking. I love the notion that, hey, this was spent money anyway. Instead of spending it on college, you simply spend it on worthy causes. I love that idea. And unfortunately, there's no truly efficient way to do it. Maybe we can get the era Congress to amend the law to allow donations to a charitable institution and let that count as use of a 529. Great idea, Ron. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Money. Do what Ron did. Send us your question to askrick at rickedelman.com. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show. I'd love to bring you every week the latest and greatest in the field of exponential technologies. Researchers at the University of California at both San Diego and San Francisco are jointly developing a cancer cell map. They have the attitude that cancer cells transfer themselves, they move along what the researchers are calling molecular phone lines. That's how cancer cells, they say, spread throughout the body. Their attitude is, if you cut the line, you kill the tumor's ability to replicate itself. The cancer cell map initiative is underway. And CRISPR is getting better. The first version, they're saying, was like a butcher, not a surgeon. Now this technology, which can allow doctors to 
repair damaged DNA or remove genes that are no good? Well, at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and the University of Washington, they're now using CRISPR technology to cut 10,000 DNA letters at a time, a true surgical approach as opposed to the original CRISPR, which was more burdensome. Further evidence of the further improvement of our medical innovations. Stay with us for more. 888-PLAN-RICK, rickedelman.com. Let's go to the phones here on the Rick Edelman Show. Off to Walton, New York. Let's say hi to Chris. He's on the air. How you doing, Chris? I'm fine. How are you, Rick? Doing great. Thanks so much. What can I do for you? So I had a couple questions. Uh, so I have a 403B from my previous employer. Mm-hmm. And I was looking to switch that over to a Roth IRA, but then I found out from your show, I think it was last weekend, that I'd, I think I'd have to pay the taxes off. Yes. Uh, in other words, if you make a withdrawal from a, a retirement account, whether it's a 403B, 401K, uh, thrift savings plan, an IRA, if you move that money to a Roth, you're actually withdrawing it from the account. You pay taxes on the withdrawal, and whatever's left over, you move to the Roth. Okay. I just wasn't sure if that was a good idea or should I just transfer it over to a traditional? It's In my view, it is not a good idea to do the Roth conversion for that exact reason. In other words, um, the reason that the Roth distributions are tax-free is because you are paying the taxes now on the conversion. So since you're paying the tax now, you don't have to pay the tax later. So why pay tax now that you don't otherwise have to pay? And the reason that the government allows you to do this is that economically, it's a wash. If you withdraw the money from the IRA and pay the tax and move to the Roth, you're going to end up with the same amount of money either way. Now, this assumes tax rates do not change because we don't know what future tax rates are going to be. I mean, we know there's a tax increase coming at the moment, but what about 20 or 30 or 40 years from now? So long-term, who knows what the future rates are going to be? So on that basis, it really doesn't make any difference. Economically, you'll be no better, no worse. And that's why the IRS shrugs their shoulders. You want to do it? Go ahead and do it. We don't care. My attitude is, if it doesn't improve your wealth, then why bother doing it? It doesn't really make any sense. And besides, the law could change. What if Congress in the future, in an effort to raise revenue because of the budget deficit or the, the federal deficit, uh, the, the federal debt that we have, what if Congress decides to start taxing Roth distributions? You'll end up having paid taxes twice, now and again later. So I just don't see any particular motivation for doing a Roth conversion because it doesn't help and... Maybe it might hurt. Who knows? Okay. So do you think keeping that in a traditional and then opening up a Roth also to start adding new money in makes sense or just do one account and pay the taxes, please? So the, the Roth can make a lot of sense for new contributions where you don't have this conversion issue. So if you are going to contribute money to a retirement account this year, opening a Roth account and contributing fresh new money might make a lot of sense. We generally take the attitude that this is ideal for people in a low tax bracket, anything under 15%. Um, because if you're in a low tax bracket, you're not getting much of a tax break anyway by putting money into a retirement account. So you might as well make the distributions tax-free. But if you're in a high tax bracket, then the uh, Roth might not be as good because Remember that contributions to the Roth are after taxes. So if you're going to put in a thousand bucks to a Roth, 
well, you really had to earn $1,500 because you're paying taxes on the 1500 netting a 1000 and then putting the 1000 into the Roth. That's assuming about a 30% tax rate. So um, it, it really, you have to ask yourself, what's the most tax-efficient way to do it? And again, you go back to my earlier problem, what if Congress changes the rules on Roths in the future? You could end up paying taxes twice. So really, the question isn't so much economic as it is philosophical. How much do you trust Congress? <laughs> if you trust Congress to leave the Roth rules alone, go ahead and put the money in the Roth. If you don't trust Congress, then don't. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how else to phrase it. No, that's, that's perfect. I'll probably just keep it in traditional and then start adding on to that as is. And either way, you're going to be in great shape. Whether we'll know which was the better course of action, we won't know until we get into the future. And then we can look backward and say we made the right move or we'll kick ourselves for not doing it as well as we could have. Bottom line is you're going to amass more wealth by contributing than if you don't contribute. Let's leave it at that. Okay, perfect. And I don't know if you have time for my second question about my mortgage payoff. Go right ahead. So... We have about 75000 remaining on our mortgage, and we have about 77000 in savings right now. So our interest rate is, a, is about 4%. So I was wondering, should I pay my mortgage off and then take a loan out on the paid-off house at a lower interest rate? If that's something that's possible, or is that just too risky of a too risky of a deal to to shuffle that money around. Well, if you can refinance the mortgage to get a lower interest rate, then go ahead and do that. If the money you save on the new payment justifies the expense of getting the new loan. Um, so for example, if refinancing costs you $1,000 and it saves you 100 bucks a month, it'll take you 10 months to recover the cost. If you're gonna stay in the house longer than 10 months, that works out to be a good deal. But if it's only saving you $20 a month uh, and you're going to sell the house within a year or two, then it wouldn't be a good deal. So you just want to evaluate what's the cost of refinancing? How long will it take me to recover that cost? Will I stay in the house long enough to make that worthwhile? That's how you answer the question. It wouldn't make a lot of sense in the practical world to pay off the mortgage and then get a home equity loan or home equity line of credit because those interest rates will be at least as high as your current loan, probably higher. There's no guarantee that that rate won't increase over time. And I'm not even sure you'll qualify for it based on current uh, lending practices and circumstances. So uh, I would say explore the notion of refinancing. Probably not something you'll discover makes a lot of sense and just leave everything the way that it is. I would not encourage you to liquidate your savings to pay off the mortgage because that would leave you house rich and cash poor. You would have no money available in case a crisis arose, job loss, medical emergency, roof leaking, who knows what. We want you to have a lot of money in cash reserves and the, the fact that you're earning less on your cash than you're paying on the mortgage is the price you pay for the safety and liquidity of the money. Okay. Okay. Perfect. I appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for calling. Uh, that was Chris in Walton, New York, here on The Rick Edelman Show. You can do what Chris did. Call us at 888-PLAN-RICK. Let's take another telephone call here on The Rick Edelman Show. Off to John. He's in Orlando, Florida. Welcome to the program, John. Thank you so much, sir. appreciate you accepting my question. I've got something for you. As a federal employee, I'm creeping up on my minimum retirement age, or MRA, August of 2022. 
So I'm thinking about my future options, my future employment options. If what seems to be a good offer presents itself, what kinds of things should I keep in mind? Do you have a list of items to weigh so I'm not blinded by, you know, say one shiny object, like a salary increase at the expense of something else that might also be important to me? Yeah, it's a really good question you're asking because too often people change jobs merely because the new job is offering a higher salary. Right. What people often fail to understand is that salary for uh, most white-collar occupations represents only 60% of your total comp. 40% of your compensation is a non-cash comp. Right. Meaning 401k matching contributions, stock options or equity in the company, paid vacation, health insurance, Mm -hmm. uh, paternity care. There's a wide variety of benefits that are often available that too often people don't take into consideration. Not to even mention other non-financial factors such as the distance of the commute. Oh, absolutely. You know, if you're going to work uh, at the new job 20 miles closer than the old job, you'll have a newfound hour a day or two hours a day. You'll spend dramatically less on gas, less wear and tear on the car, uh, which means lower maintenance and repair costs, higher resale value, more time with your family, and so on. So there's a huge amount that you need to consider, not least of which you also have to factor in the impact on your career. Mm -hmm. Is this a stepping stone in the support and maintenance and improvement of your own career, building your resume so that it's not this next job you take, it's the job after that that you have to think about? Right. Will this next job help you get the next job after that? Because increasingly people spend less than five years at a given employer. The Department of Labor says for people under the age of 35, they spend on average two years in a given employer. Wow. So you need to be thinking not just about this next move, but the move after that. So think about all of that in its totality uh, before you make uh, any decisions. And it often helps to talk with a financial advisor as a sounding board, just like we're doing today, but with a specific deal in hand. Absolutely. So here's the offer I got, Mm -hmm. and let's compare that to your current circumstances, to your family's needs, how it fits into your personal plan, your financial plan, and your goals and objectives. And that way you'll make a decision that you'll be happy with, and you won't be filled with regret of chasing a job because the grass was greener, only to find out that it was burnt. Right, the so-called buyer's remorse. Exactly, exactly. Very good. Hey, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. You're very welcome, John. Uh, Enjoy your job hunt. Hopefully you'll do very well. Uh, That was John in Orlando, Florida, here on The Rick Edelman Show. Triple H, Plan Rick, online at ricedelman.com. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show. Let's go to the phones and say hi to Yassine, calling from Lindbrook, New York. Hi, Yassine. How are you? Hi, Rick. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. How can I help? Uh, So, uh, my partner and I bought a house in Long Island, New York, two years ago. Uh, we still have 20 years in our mortgage. Uh, the interest rate is 3.5%. Uh, since we bought our house, we were making an extra payment of uh, 1000 into the principal every month. Uh, the balance of uh, the mortgage is 600000 So my question to you is, do you think it's a good idea of making these extra payments? or uh, invest it instead in mutual funds, ETFs, or something else? Let me ask you the question, Yassine. Uh, When you make investments, you already own mutual funds and ETFs and the like, yes? Yeah, we do. We do. 
And over the next 30 years, uh, you've got 28 years left on this mortgage. What do you think the average annual return will be for those investments? Um, I mean, listening to you, <laughs> I listen to your podcast and everything. So I think it's going to be around 7 8% a year. Okay. If that's true, why would you want to put the money into your mortgage that effectively costs 3.5%? when you can instead put the money into your investments that you say will earn seven or eight. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's better to invest it in uh, mutual funds or ETFs. I just want to have your opinion on this. Yeah, that's exactly the point. And also, by the way, if you put the money into those investments, the money remains available to you. Should you ever need it for any reason, once you give the money to the lender, you'll never see that money again, unless you sell the house. Uh, or refinance, putting you right back in the situation you're in now. So uh, there's really no particular advantage in my mind to paying off that mortgage when you can instead put that money into uh, an effective, diversified portfolio that you're going to hold for you know, a very, very long time. So that would be my recommendation. Now, I would also want to make sure that you don't have any credit card debt or high interest debt. I'd want to make sure you have ample cash reserves. Uh, so I'd want to know that you're doing everything necessary in your personal planning, not just looking at this myopic question of taking the 1000 bucks a month and sending it to the choices of either the mortgage or the investments. There might be a better third choice, like paying off Visa or putting the money in the bank, even at a low interest rate, in order to build cash reserves. So I'd want to do a more thorough exam. But the fundamental issue is, why pay down a low interest rate mortgage when you can put the money to much better use elsewhere? Um, so uh, we maxed out our 401ks, uh, our Roth IRAs, everything is maxed out, and uh, zero, zero dollar credit card. I mean, no, uh, no debts at all. How much money do you have in savings in the bank? In a bank, I think we have about two years of uh, emergency funds. Awesome. Well, I think you're in awesome financial condition, and that further argues for your idea since you think your investments will earn 7 or 8% a year over the next 10 or 20 years, that that's where that 1000 a month ought to go. Okay. Thank you. You're very welcome, Yassine. I'm glad you called. That was Yassine in Lindbrook, New York, here on The Rick Edelman Show, 888-PLAN-RICK. Let's, uh, for a moment, run over to Harrington Park, New Jersey. Greg is on the phone with us. How are you, Greg? Hi. Good morning, Rick. I am well. I hope you and your lovely wife are doing, uh, doing the same. We are. Thank you so much. How can I help you today? Good. Um, question. Uh, first of all, we spoke several months ago uh, concerning the options I had when I was considering how to finance my daughter's college education. And I appreciate that, and I thank you very much for it. You were very generous with your time. Today, my question concerns the possibility of creating a donor-advised fund. My wife and I have reached a point in our lives where we feel we can afford to do this without any financial hardship. Now, I've done my research. I know that when you create a donor-advised fund, you can't get your money back. It's gone, and it can only be directed to qualified 501c3 charities at my direction by the trustee or the custodian of the funds. I am also aware that a donor uh, in this situation or the creator of the DAF uh, needs to know the investment options for the money as well as what the annual fees are going to be. 
Now, one of the reasons, actually there are two reasons I like the idea of a donor uh, advised fund. First of all, uh, as the corpus is going to be treated as a charitable contribution in the year that it's made, I would be able to donate appreciated property without having to realize the capital gains on those investments. So it sounds good to me, uh, and I know the devil can be in the details here, and that's why I wanted to speak with you. Well, you didn't ask a question anywhere in there, Greg. I would like to know if there are any uh, peculiarities within a donor-advised fund, which me, due to my lack of experience, don't know and that you might be aware of. Got it. Okay. Uh, No, there are no issues or concerns that you have not articulated. And by the way, you articulated them very well. You could host this radio show. You give a very good description of what a donor-advised fund is. Thank you, sir. So for a person who's charitably inclined, they donate money to a charity, and in doing so, they get a tax deduction. The problem is you might be charitably inclined, you might have the money to donate, but the problem is you don't know who to donate it to, uh, or you don't want to donate to them all in one lump sum, but you do want to make the donation for tax reasons in this calendar year. That's a perfect candidate for a donor-advised fund. These are operated by some of the biggest mutual fund companies in America. Fidelity, for example, uh, Schwab, uh, Franklin, they and others have donor-advised funds. When you put money into a donor-advised fund, you are donating to a charity because that's what they are. They will manage the money for you. You can even choose how the money is invested in the variety of mutual funds that they offer. You get a tax deduction for making the donation right now. The money will stay managed with them until you decide who to distribute it to. And then they will distribute it to the charity of your choice or charities of your choice whenever you're ready on an annual basis or you can wait several years or what have you. You'll pay them an annual fee similar to the fees you're going to pay for investing in mutual funds. Uh, And it's as simple and clear and easy as that. So uh, there's not a lot of downside. I guess the only downside that exists is that the charities have to wait to get the money because you're not giving the money to them immediately. You're giving the money to this donor-advised fund, and the charities will eventually get the money. That's about the major downside. Actually, Rick, I was waiting for you to say to me, you know, to cluck your tongue a little bit and to say, Greg, you have it wrong here. He, it's, that's not how it works. So the fact that I seem to have it right, I'm actually, it's, it's, you know, breathing a sigh of relief that I actually read it and understood it properly. Yeah, yeah, you've got it. There is another type of individual for whom a donor-advised fund could work, and that is someone who does like to give money, but they can't give a lot of money in any one year. So you might feel that giving $100 to a charity annually isn't of much value to the charity and it's all you can afford. You give the hundred bucks to the donor advised fund. You do that every year for 10 years. At the end of 10 years, you've got a thousand bucks plus all the growth, maybe worth 2000 bucks by then. And then you give the 2000 bucks to the charity in a single lump sum. So uh, there are lots of benefits, lots of opportunities in using donor advised funds. We uh, have them available at Edelman Financial Engines uh, for clients who, for whom they, they make sense and are uh, solving their issues. So, yeah, uh, the donor advised funds are very uh, stable, reputable, have a good place in the charitable world. And uh, you've described them fine. Wonderful. Oh, wonderful. Okay. Before, before I leave, Eric, first of all, thank you very much for your time. Um, I've always believed that knowledge is power. 
Thank you very much for your time, and God bless you and your and your wife in your future. Take care, Rick. Thank you. That was Greg from Harrington Park, New Jersey, here on The Rick Edelman Show. Triple H, Plan Rick, rickedelman.com. As always, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. And remember, if you miss any part of the show, check out our full podcast at rickedelman.com. And whenever you have a financial question, call us at Triple H, Plan Rick, or visit online at rickedelman.com. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. See you next week.